Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. This episode, we are celebrating Neurodiversity Week, and we're doing so with a conversation with Katie Higgins-Lee. We're talking about neurodiversity, neurodivergence, giftedness, overexcitability, what neurodiversity means, and how to be neurodiversity affirming. This is a fantastic conversation. We hope you're going to get a whole lot out of it because this conversation really is a celebration of neurodiversity. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Positive Disintegration. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hello, Chris. Hello, Emma. It's great to be here with you again. Oh, it's always great to be here with you. I'm excited for our episode tonight. We have a guest who is going to talk with us about the topic of neurodivergence. And I'm very excited about this because I just feel like it's a little shocking that we've gone this many episodes before tackling this head on. So I'm excited to have Katie with us tonight. Me too. Um, It'd be good to also get some, I guess, some advice and direction on how to talk about neurodiversity in the first place. So we did our values episode um, and we spoke about, you know, we want to be affirming. Um, So it'd be good to get some guidance in that direction too. Exactly. Yes. So for our listeners, our guest today is Katie Higgins-Lee. Katie is a therapist and clinical supervisor in private practice in Santa Rosa, California. She works with neurodivergent adults with a focus on giftedness and twice exceptionality and is also a homeschooling parent. Welcome to the podcast, Katie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. We're excited to have you here. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a, a big fan of the podcast and of both of your work, so I'm very happy to be here. Well, and we're a fan of your work. And so I'm going to jump right in and ask Katie, what is neurodiversity? Like, what does that mean? Sure. So um, I like Dr. Nick Walker's definition of neurodiversity, um, which is, and I'm going to read it so that I get it right, which is, quote, the diversity of human brains and minds, the infinite variation in neurocognitive functioning within our species, end quote. Um, And the neurodiversity movement was created by autistic advocates, but it was later applied to to a lot of other things. Um, uh, And a group of people can be neurodiverse, but an individual can be neurodivergent. So for example, um, each of us, the three of us are neurodivergent, um, but together we as a group are neurodiverse, just like with cultural diversity and bio biodiversity. It's a similar way of using using that word. Um, and then in terms of neurodivergence, there can be innate or acquired neurodivergence, and it all fits under that umbrella. So innate being things like autism, ADHD, giftedness, dyslexia, um, etc. And then acquired would be things like PTSD, depression, anxiety, um, traumatic brain injury, etc. Um, pretty much anything in the DSM, which is the, the manual that we use for, for diagnosing, um, at least here in the States, and I think some other places they use it too. Um, almost everything in the DSM would actually be examples of neurodivergent. Very often, though, when people use the word neurodivergent, they're referring to autism and ADHD. Um, and there is a, a push to, 
to start to be more specific when talking about yourself. I often will say just that I'm multiply neurodivergent just because that's a little bit easier than listing all of the things. Um, but I also do, you know, state which specific neurotypes I am. Did you, you know, yeah, that was the only question, right? <laughs> I just forgot. <laughs> Well, now, I, I, well, I feel like that really opens the door to saying, you know, is giftedness its own neurotype? And that's a, a something that's debated. I personally believe that it is. Um, and it seems like most people in the giftedness community believe that giftedness is a neurotype um, because it's not just um, IQ, that there are other things that go along with this intelligence. Um so yes, giftedness is a neurotype. Something you just said just sparked me to realize that, you know, especially when you're thinking about giftedness as asynchronous development, you know, which includes the overexcitabilities or like the heightened intensity as a part of it, which is a certain kind of giftedness. You know, not everybody who is identified as gifted experiences overexcitabilities. But right. if you do and you have that high intelligence as well or the high cognitive abilities, then that's that's an intense experience of reality. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, and that's the idea with a neurotype is that it's anything that um, diverges from what is typical. Um, and so with the overexcitabilities and the asynchronous development that comes with giftedness, it makes it even more clear. But even if it was just IQ, it still would be an example of diverging from from what is typical. With giftedness as well, I guess the way you learn and process information may be different and that in itself uh, would be a form of being neurodivergent, would it not? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and, and I mean, I think anyone who, who, I mean, being gifted, we experience that, but then observing it in kids makes it so clear to me um, where um, I've seen teachers where they're, if they're not familiar with gifted kids and they'll be like concerned that a child is not doing a certain thing that they're supposed to be doing at the grade that they're in. And then the, the parent will often know, well, you know what, they're going to be okay because they're going to all of a sudden do that thing without us even teaching them, <laughs> or it's going to happen just in a split second. And that asynchronous development is, is, is such a different way of learning um, and experiencing the world that it, it's so just markedly noticeable when you, when you witness children as they're, as they're learning, as they're going through the process of development and the asynchronous development that just causes things to go, you know, seemingly, you know, supposedly very slow and then suddenly just jumping ahead, not going through all of the steps that are more typical development for learning. Right. Like when I was a kid, I mean, I was reading by the time I was three, that was a very <laughs> different experience of childhood and learning that happened like in a flash. Right. I mean, I don't right. remember learning to read. Like I, it's something, it's like, I only remember reading, you know, I know a lot of people who remember, you know, being a kid I, and, and the struggles I of do. reading. 
Do you? Oh, but I was really young. Dad said, I'm like, you were reading when you were two, but I remember having this distinct thought that they, my parents were going, oh, well done, you're reading. But I actually memorized my favorite book and was just <laughs> following along because I knew which words went with which pictures. So I was kind of like faking it. Oh, that's interesting because, you know, um, in one of the participants in my dissertation study, she described how, you know, her son was reading really early, but her husband didn't believe it because he thought that he was just memorizing the books. And so she describes like having to pull randomly like books off the shelf and the shelf and like have the kid, you know, prove that he was actually, you know, able to read. So it's interesting because some kids do memorize. And so it seems like reading. Right. And I think that is so important. What you just described that that is part of that, um, the way that giftedness is an example of diverging from what is typical, even though there's so much, there, there is definitely privilege in giftedness in certain ways, but there's also the misunderstandings that happen um, like that, where, where someone thinks, oh, you couldn't really be reading that thing. The, the doubting of someone's experience that happens when someone is gifted. I definitely experienced that. I remember a teacher who, I think it was first grade, who I shared a poem that I'd written and the teacher said, oh, you couldn't have written that and went to my parent and said, did Katie actually write this? And they said, yeah, as far as we know. Um, but the teacher never believed that I actually wrote it. And I remember another time reading, I think it was To Kill a Mockingbird. I read, read it at a, a pretty young age. I don't remember how old. And again, it was a teacher who said, oh, you couldn't have read that. And when I, and when I said, no, I did, I really did. And then they said, oh, well, you couldn't have understood it though. You must've read the words, but you didn't understand what it was about, <laughs> right? Um, so I think that is, again, it's another example of how being gifted can cause these like ruptures in our experience and in, in our relationship with, say, like educators and parents and, 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 and others. That's right. Because, and you know, the sad part to me is that I think for the most part, it's so unintentional that this experience of invalidating children, you know, adults... I, there, of course, there are exceptions. There are malicious adults that exist out there who are just mean to children. But for the most part, people are well-intentioned and they don't realize that they're invalidating kids when they say that kind of thing. Like, oh, you couldn't have really understood it, though. Like, no, I did. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And I think that that it's and that's similar to what happens with, you know, with autism and ADHD also, where I don't think that people are trying to be invalidating of people's experience or being, they're not trying to be unsupportive. It's just that because this, this person in front of them that is neurodivergent, that their experience is so different from their own, they just can't even understand why or, or what this person needs, which I think is part of the neurodiversity movement is to be neurodiversity affirming, to, to recognize that every person is different and every person's needs are valid and that it's important to ask and find out what this person needs and to validate what they need and then to provide those supports, even if it seems like something that makes no sense to you at all. Yeah, that's the important part. Even if it doesn't make sense to you, exactly. It's about the person in front of you, you know, who you're trying to help or serve as an educator, a clinician in whatever role, or even as a parent, you know, I can say there's been many times with my own son where I've unintentionally invalidated him just 
because I was like imposing my own values or seeing things only through my lens and not trying to see it from his perspective or to meet his needs, you know, where he was. And so, you know, this unfortunately is just something that's too easy to perpetuate in our lives, like without meaning to, you know, I mean, I think that I had to figure out as a parent to stop and like see the child in front of me to respect him and his needs. Because, you know, when you're a parent, it's too easy to be like, hurry up, or I'll do that for you. Or, um, you know, just because of like the constraints imposed by life and school and, you know, demands, which is, we could have another whole episode just on like demand avoidance and, you know, as another kind of neurodivergence, which, you know, we experience here in, in my house. Right, right. For more than yeah. one of us. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think what, you know, what you were just saying is so true that as, as parents and probably as educators too, I'm not, you know, I'm not, well, I mean, I am, yes, I guess I am. I'm, I, I homeschool, so I do educate my kids just on a, you know, just it's one-on-one, -on -one, two at a time because I have two kids, um, that it's, it's inconvenient when someone needs something different, right? Like when, you know, suddenly their, their tastes change or their interests change, or they suddenly don't like something that they did like, it's inconvenient, right? So it, it makes sense that we would have this tendency to kind of push people towards what is easier for us. And a lot of times what is more typical is easier, right? In a classroom, I can't even imagine um, being a teacher I can't imagine trying to teach to a huge range of different needs, um, but that is actually what is needed. And I mean, that's a bigger issue of just, you know, school systems and, and what needs to change, which is, you know, part of the reason that we homeschool is that it was very clear to us that our, our kids would not have fit. And we had, again, the privilege to be able to do that in terms of having both, you know, my husband and I both having flexible work schedules because we're both self-employed so we were able to make it work where we we share the the responsibility of of educating our kids because we recognize that a school environment would not be um would not be supportive for them in in most situations because they're they're different in various ways Kate, i want to ask on on being neurodiversity affirming can you talk a little bit about um being non-pathologizing yes yes absolutely so um I will talk about this mainly in relation to innate neurodivergence um, because, you know, like I said, um, that the idea of neurodiversity, the neurodiversity movement is, is, you know, for, to get the perspective of people who have the lived experience, basically. And so I don't have lived experience with other neurotypes, so I don't feel comfortable talking about them. Um, but with autism, ADHD, and giftedness, the way that, you know, I view being neurodiversity affirming is to view all of them, these as neurotypes and identities as opposed to pathologies or deficits. Um, and to look at all three of these as being somewhat equal in that way, as opposed to, again, giftedness being like a benefit and ADHD and autism being um, a disadvantage. Um, but that doesn't mean that autism and ADHD, you know, that it, that there isn't disability that happens with them in our society. Um, and part of that is, you know, and the neurodiversity movement is they adhere to the social model of disability, which proposes that 
A person is disabled by society and environment as opposed to being inherently disabled. So it's using the word disabled as a verb rather than a noun. Um, and that's a very big part of, of the movement and of being affirming. And it's also recognizing that all of these neurotypes are just different ways of thinking, experiencing, and communicating, but they're all completely valid, but that our society is, um, it's, it's easier to be certain neurotypes in our society. Again, because if you diverge, it's more inconvenient, it's more challenging for people, and people often don't just automatically accommodate for these differences. Um, another aspect of being neurodiversity affirming is using identity first language, as in saying autistic person, as opposed to using person first language, which would be saying a person with autism. Um, and for ADHD, there isn't a great way to do this. So many of us just say adhd -er instead of saying person with ADHD. And the reason for that is because we view autism, autism and ADHD, just as we do with giftedness, as being just a part of who we are, part of our identity, as opposed to like, an illness that's been put on us, right? Like, you know, um, you wouldn't say a cancer person, you say a person with cancer because it's an illness that, that came along afterwards and that you want to get rid of. Whereas autism and ADHD are not things to get rid of, they're not things to cure, which is another big part of the neurodiversity movement is to not try to cure autism, not try to cure ADHD because they are just differences that need support and accommodations, as opposed to fixing, curing, or trying to make someone fit neurotypical norms. And one last thing I'll say about being neurodiversity affirming is also not using functioning labels. So we wouldn't say that an autistic person is low functioning or high functioning, um, because many of us, for many of us, functioning varies day to day, depending on the environment and even moment to moment. And so instead, it's preferred to just describe a person's specific needs in a particular situation. Um, instead of saying that a person is high functioning or low functioning. When I, you know, started telling people that I'm autistic, pretty much every person um, said, oh, but you're very high functioning, aren't you? Which like, um, yeah, I fit what people have historically talked about as being high functioning because yeah, I'm, you know, married, I have kids, I have a job, I have a master's degree. Um, but that way of phrasing it is not neurodiversity affirming because there are many people that fit that description and can't manage to take care of their basic needs at other times, or they can't speak at certain times that they will completely become non-speaking at moments because of the overwhelm that they feel. And so the idea of functioning labels is, is definitely not neurodiversity affirming. And then the last two things I'll say is just being trauma-informed is really important, and then um, to be trans-affirming. I mean, LGBTQ-affirming in general, but especially trans-affirming. And that is something that I think is really important because, really important to say, because there are some people um, who say that they are neurodiversity-affirming, um, and they have very large followings on social media, but they are transphobic, and stating things as facts that are not accurate about um, about trans people and their experience. And so that to me is very important because, and the reason I said that is because there is such a high crossover between people that are trans being autistic. There's a really high percentage of people that are trans that, that are also autistic. So that's an important part of being neurodiversity affirming as well. Thanks so much for including you know, gender in this discussion of being affirming, because I think that's so important. And you're, you're right that I unfortunately see a lot of transphobia 
in the neurodiversity community and and the gifted community. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, it's not funny, but uh, it's just an ongoing battle, it feels like. Of course, tell us how you learned about Dabrowski's theory. Sure. So I first learned about Dabrowski um, and the theory in an online gifted parenting group about, I think, about four or five years ago. And I feel like I need to explain the process of me ending up in a gifted parenting group <laughs> to hear about Dabrowski. Um, so I was identified as gifted as a kid when I was about seven or so. And I was very privileged that there was a um, gifted program for elementary school that I got to be in. And it was actually an experimental program at the time. We were the first sort of cohort of kids to do it in our in our town. Um, and it ended up to be a wonderful experience. But I remember at the time being really curious and also baffled about what giftedness was um, because I remember the adults, like parents and teachers, telling us what it meant that we were gifted. Basically, they said that we were smart, but that description just didn't fit with what I experienced and with what I witnessed in my classmates. But I never really got any answers at that time. I eventually became a therapist and then became a parent and I started noticing some traits that my kids showed at a very young age that, that reminded me of not just me, but those classmates that I'd had um, back when I was a kid. So I, again, became fascinated with understanding giftedness, which is what led to me being in a parenting group for giftedness. And then in that group, reading about Dabrowski and specifically, it was initially OEs, um, overexcitabilities. That's what was what I learned about first. And I immediately thought it was just fascinating and I saw how it applied to me and to my family and then also my clients that I was working with. Um, and at that point, I was actually, my primary focus as a therapist was working with trauma, but I was really seeing how overexcitabilities were showing up with so many of my clients. So I did more trainings and I read various books on giftedness, um, which led to the discovery over time. And this took, this took a while to the discovery that I'm not just gifted, but also autistic and an ADHDer. And in that process, it became really clear to me that, that overexcitabilities are part of not just the giftedness experience, but also the autistic and ADHD experience. And again, it was confusing to me that I wasn't seeing that or hearing that being talked about more uh, in the giftedness community there wasn't, I, at that time, at least I wasn't really hearing anybody talk about overexcitabilities being part of autism and ADHD. And also in the, in the neurodiversity um, communities, I wasn't seeing any talk about overexcitabilities. And then I also really saw this major disconnection between the giftedness community and the neurodiversity affirming community. I remember coming to overexcitability from my perspective as you know, understanding myself as an ADHDer and also wondering about that, except I was reading, you know, articles in the literature that were saying that they were different, you know, that, that there was a clear distinction between overexcitability and um, ADHD. And that especially came from the misdiagnosis book by Jim Webb et al., you know, um, and, you know, I had both editions of that book, like from 2005 and 2016 at some point. And I thought to myself, wow, is this really true that it's really overexcitability and not ADHD? And of course, now that was several years ago. And I, I know that that's not true. 
But right. but that's the problem is that there's a whole literature that that tells people that these are different things. But those of us who are neurodivergent, I think it's up to us at this point to kind of take control of this narrative and help people understand that they're not different. Right, right, exactly. And that same book um, I had read earlier on in my exploration and initially I was, I thought, oh, this book is so great. It's so helpful. Okay. Me and my family were just gifted. Um, that's, that's all it is because there'd been some question about whether, um, me and other family members were, um, autistic. And I initially read that book and then thought, okay, that's not what it is. And then as I started digging deeper from the neurodiversity lens, I started to recognize that, well, no, the things that were being talked about in that book as being just OEs were actually the seemingly the exact same thing that were being talked about as being traits of other kinds of neurodivergence. I, um, at one point, um, and I think I've, I've shared this um, before with you, um, in my process of discovering that I was, that I'm neurodivergent, I um, framed it as a hero's journey process um, because I have a background in theater and, and film. My undergrad degree is actually in filmmaking and the hero's journey, the monomyth process has, has been something that has been important in understanding different things in my life, but with neurodivergence, it was again. And if you're familiar with that process, one of the stages is um, where when you're going through a transformation that there are allies and enemies that will sort of come up and, and help you or hinder you in your process. And that's just part of the process that has to be there. And it's funny because that book, I actually think of it as being one of the, the quote enemies. I mean, that's a very strong word um, because I have loved many things that James Webb has written. So it's not, you know, him, but, but just the way that the book phrases things um, that that was the, something that actually kind of hindered me in that process. But I also recognize as all journeys are like that, it, it's, it's a part of the process that's needed. Right. I agree. I mean, that, that's, I went through that too. You know, it's so interesting to me that we're having this conversation because I think that potentially a lot of people will listen to this episode and recognize themselves in what we're talking about right now. I still see all the time in groups on Facebook, people saying, oh, no, it's it's just giftedness and in recommending that the person read misdiagnosis and no, it's overexcitability. You know, it's it's not ADHD or autism. And I. I hope that this episode will just be one step in the right direction and helping people see that that's like a false dichotomy and just not reality. Right, exactly. And one of the things that I think the giftedness community it needs to recognize, at least in my opinion, is that the concept of giftedness is losing credibility in a lot of community. I mean, in the, in the neurodiversity community, because of so many people that have had a missed identification of other kinds of neurodivergence, where um, I, I've seen this in, I mean, really a lot of the reaction to some of the social media things that I posted, where there's, you know, a lot of people are, are loving things that I um, have, have talked about, but then there have been some people that are, that are saying, no, giftedness is not real. Um, it, I was identified, this is, and this is, you know, things that I've read, people saying I was identified as gifted and then years later was identified as autistic and it was just autism the whole time and giftedness was something that got in the way of me recognizing that. 
And my opinion and my experience is that giftedness is also part of the picture. It's not that it's instead of, um, like for me, I know that's true, that I'm also gifted, um, but that was only part of the picture. And so having the focus on giftedness and sort of minimizing the possibility of other kinds of neurodivergence, that there are many people who really have experienced trauma from that. Um, that's At least that's what I see so often with clients. And again, on social media, um, I'm seeing that. And because of that, people then say, okay, giftedness is associated with this, this trauma for them. And so then they, they just write it off as not being something at all. And so there's this lack of trust in the gifted label because it's associated with their misdiagnosis or their misidentification of autism or ADHD. Exactly. I've seen that too, of course. I mean, as you know, we've, I've seen threads that you've posted in, um, in groups where this has happened. And so, yeah, I've seen it as well. And I think you articulated that so well that like their own trauma is, is causing them now to even reject the idea of giftedness as being legitimate. And, and yet we know that they coexist. It's certainly not one or the other and, or they're not mutually exclusive. You can be autistic, be an ADHD or, and be gifted as well. Um, it's, it's a really interesting situation. And personally, I keep seeing a generational divide here where, you know, there's just a certain number of people who work in the gifted field, either as therapists or teachers or in whatever capacity. And they, they just haven't been exposed to what we've been exposed to because of our own research and journey into the neurodiversity community, you know? And so they're just unaware and they, for the most part, I think are still thinking of autism and ADHD or whatever other exceptionality as something that's wrong with you and not, you know, from an affirming perspective. Right, exactly. There's this um, assumption that the same trait, if it is like if one person has a trait that is not causing any issues in their life, and it's a trait that kind of is in that overlap between giftedness and another kind of neurodivergence, there's this assumption like, well, then, okay, then it mean, that means it's giftedness. If it's not disabling, if it's not causing issues in your life, then that means it's just giftedness. Um, and that if it's causing problems in your life, that means that it's some other kind of neurodivergence. And that um, that's one of the things that I have really been trying to shift that perspective, just um, mainly from my own experience, again, with myself, with clients um, and with family members, where the same trait at a different time in life will be disabling. Um, like personally becoming a parent shifted a lot of things where things that before I had had so much support and accommodations without even realizing it. Um, but then when I became a parent and, and kind of my needs had to be put aside very often, that then a lot of these traits that previously had just been gifted traits, supposedly, suddenly became very clearly um, autistic and ADHD traits. Um, and so that's where I think that it can cause so many problems when we have this idea that gifted is an advantage and autism and ADHD are like a disadvantage. That one, you know, again, giftedness as being like constructive and um, ADHD and autism as being destructive, which is not the case at all. In, in the same way that the gifted community has used OEs as a way to show 
the positive aspects of giftedness um, and kind of seeing them through this positive lens, that's exactly what the neurodiversity movement has done for autism and ADHD. Um, and that's again, where that disconnection is so, so startling when, you know, like, like Chris, like you and I being kind of in both of those worlds, it's very startling to see that, that they're, we're all talking about the same thing, but with different languaging and then thinking that they are talking about something completely different. It, totally. You know, I've been exposed to a lot of, you know, documents from the past and I've seen many times like checklists or, um, you know, where like on half the page, it's, you know, this, if it's here, it's overexcitability, you know, if it's over here, it's ADHD. And it's unfortunate that, you know, there was such a push to, to make it an either or situation, but I'm glad that we're at a point now where we can kind of clarify these things and, and help educate people. Right. I feel like it's important just to say there that like state that I understand why in a way that that happened, you know, where I understand that many people were misdiagnosed or, you know, I don't know that they were, maybe they were misdiagnosed as autistic when they were actually gifted that, you know, that possibly does happen. I have not witnessed that personally in anyone that I know um, or with clients, um, but I do hear that that did happen. And so I can understand why there was this push to recognize giftedness um, and all the different ways that it can look. Um, but I think so often what can happen is swinging, you know, too far from one side to the other side, these extremes that happen um, in our culture and in different communities. And it seems like that's what happened. Is it just things swung way too far to the other direction? And then hopefully now things are starting to get a little more balanced. I hope so. <laughs> Do you think part of that is because as a society, we've got this real need to make things quite simple and clearly defined. So we want to fit, fit something neatly into one box or another. And, you know, we want to say, well, this is definitely one thing because in some way we don't want to have too many labels attached to ourselves. Um, because I think if there's still this sort of pathologizing sort of stigma around things or culture it's like well if I take on too many labels what does that say about me if I take on ADHD and autism and giftedness like what is that saying about me as a person you know is it making me too different because the the way we run as a society is we say round peg round hole fit in um, and when we have too many defining features that make us different we feel really uncomfortable about that Yes, I absolutely. Yeah, I think you're onto something with that. Absolutely. I had two thoughts on that. Okay. So one is that it's interesting that we want to have everyone fit into these boxes. Um, yes. I mean, because it's, it's simpler, it's easier if we just say it's this or that it's black or white. Um, it's all or nothing. It's, it's easier to understand things that way, but neurodivergence of course is so nuanced and so complicated. Um, there is clearly some connection between giftedness, autism, ADHD, along with other things. Um, uh, I've heard some people saying OCD, that there's some connection there too. Um, and then of course there's um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, EDS, um, which I am pretty sure I have. It's a connective tissue disorder that occurs in really high rates for people that are um, autistic. And then people that are trans are more likely to be autistic. So there's clearly something, there's some connection between all of these things that we don't understand yet. And so that's where it's actually more likely that if someone is one of these things that they will actually have more than one label. Um, there was research 
that recently came out um, that, and I'll see if I can remember the details of it, but it was that they identified the genetic variants for autism and ADHD. They recognized that there were a certain number that were shared by autism and ADHD. So these variations that, you know, deviated from kind of typical development. So these two, I can't remember how many it was, five, something like that, that were for autism and ADHD. And then there were more that they identified that were specific to autism or ADHD. So it almost indicates in a way that possibly autism and ADHD are like two branches um, that come off of a bigger branch that comes off of the bigger branch before that, if that makes sense. And I think that at some point we're going to recognize that with giftedness too, um, that there's some connection. There's also another research study. Um, well, this was actually not a study. This was, I think, like where they looked at a bunch of other studies and compiled the, the information together um, regarding giftedness and autism, um, where, they, well, they actually use the word high intelligence instead of giftedness. Um, it's this article called Autism as a Disorder of High Intelligence. And it's basically that the alleles for autism are, in, for some of them, they're identical to the alleles for giftedness or for, again, they use the word high intelligence. Um, so again, there's some connection there. And so th this article, their, their hypothesis was that autism is actually a disorder of, you know, using the word disorder, which I don't love, but that's the way that they phrased it, um, of high intelligence where there's just these really extreme highs and lows, more extreme than even with giftedness, where there's asynchronous development with giftedness, that with autism, it's even more extreme. And that for autistic people, those the area of intelligence that they that they have might be something that we in our society currently don't even recognize or aren't even aware of as being something that is valuable in our society. And that's not to say that I'm saying that giftedness or that I'm saying that autistic people are all gifted, because the way that um, at least I and most people in the giftedness community define giftedness is different than just being intelligent in one particular area, giftedness, there's, there's more to it than that. Um, but there is clearly some connection there between all of these things. I think there's connections there that we haven't even thought of and don't yet understand. I went to a workplace event recently and in this booklet that I've got, it's about being seen, which was a spotlight on BIPLUS inclusion in the workplace. And one of the things that came out of the 2022 Australian Workplace Equality Index was that something like 49% of people who identified as bisexual or pansexual also identified as being neurodiverse, which you wouldn't immediately like jump to that sort of um, correlation, but it, clearly there's there's some sort of connection there to have such a high statistic on it. Um, and what I like, Katie, about one of the things that you did was you produced that Venn diagram about ADHD, autism, giftedness, and that sort of did the rounds on social media. And I think the more that we think in, of these things in terms of overlap and Venn diagrams, because a lot of people ask me on YouTube comments a lot about overexcitabilities and say, well, that sounds like you know highly sensitive person, or that sounds like ADHD, or that sounds like autism. And it's like, we have to start thinking in terms of overlap and Venn diagrams, particularly when it comes to things like you know, traits and you know, physical manifestations. Yes, absolutely. And what was so fascinating about that diagram was seeing the reactions to it that were so varied. Um, 
I, I mean, I just have to say that I, I didn't expect it to get shared. So, um, so, so widely, um, I had just sort of put it, it together. Nuts, didn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it did. And I, I had just sort of put it together as, um, I was trying to concretize something that was in my mind that I'd been over the, you know, for a number of years, been trying to understand the overlaps and the distinctions between these three things. Um, and so I eventually was like, oh, well, I actually, I, I kept hoping somebody else would make one. <laughs> There's a wonderful account um, on Instagram, Neurodivergent Insights, who does Venn diagrams. You might, you, you both might've seen all of these Venn diagrams that they do um, for all different kinds of neurodivergence. Um, and I kept hoping that they would do one with giftedness and they never did. So eventually I was like, okay, I'll just create one. I'll just put it down on paper. And then I was like, should I share this? I don't know if I should share this. It's just something that's in my mind. I don't know for sure that it's accurate, but I decided eventually to just put it out. Um, you know, I, I made it look a little bit nicer than it was when it was just for me, um, but still didn't put that much effort and did not kind of perfect it and then put it out. And then it got shared so widely, way more than what I usually have happened with my tiny little following that I've had. Um, and it was so interesting to see the reactions because there were so many people in the neurodivergent community that again said things like giftedness isn't real, or they said, you've got this all wrong. All those traits that you have under giftedness are actually autism or ADHD. And then on the flip side, there were people in the giftedness community who said something similar, but the opposite that they were saying, you know, no, no, you've got this wrong. Those traits that you put under autism are actually, and ADHD are actually gifted for, for some of the traits. So it was so interesting to see just how, how um, varied and how opposite these reactions were um, to this diagram. It was fascinating. And it was amazing to see it get shared the way it did. Wow. And I'm going to put it in the show notes so that listeners can see it. And But I, I love that you did it. I have thought for a long time about these overlaps, but I'm not a visual person. And so I'm not the kind of person who, you know, makes a diagram. And so I love when someone else like you does. And I love all of your content on Tending Paths. Like, I highly recommend people follow you. Well, but you have great content, Katie. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, again, that was also something where mo pretty much everything I've posted is something where I was trying to understand something. And so then I did some research and then wrote it down and then decided to create it into a visual form and then decided to share it. It was all sort of part of my own process. Um, and also very often it's when I get sort of fired up about something that I'm reading somewhere else and have this need to correct things, um, which is an autistic trait. I mean, I know not only autistic people do that, but like when something is, um, when something doesn't sit right with me or when I see misinformation, it is so challenging for me that I immediately feel the need to, to correct it. Um, and that, you know, in certain situations does not go well where I, um, have been perceived in a negative way sometimes because I am, I get very passionate, you know, my OEs come out very clearly when something doesn't feel accurate to me, which I have to say is one thing about that diagram that bothers me a little bit is that I didn't, it's not perfect. And so now I'm seeing all of these flaws in it and things that, oh yeah, that, that wasn't quite right. And oh yeah, that maybe should have been over there or should I, I should have done more research, which is one of the struggles I've had with um, creating content and posting things is that our understandings, my understandings evolve um, over time. And sometimes something that I think is true, then I realize later that it's not. And partially that's because these categories are, again, there's so many overlaps and there's still so much that we don't understand about it. 
And there's so much research that needs to be done still. I'm going to say two things on that. One is content creation is never a perfect thing. And as long as you say, look, I'm still learning on this journey and my perspective is going to shift, then that's the, the best you can really do. But also too, like Chris knows I love this, like looking at the tiger analogy, um, I use this a lot, like, you know, if you go up to a tiger's cage and you look at it from the left side, you might see, you know, two legs because you're looking at the, the left side of it and one eye and one ear. And then you go around to the back and all of a sudden you can see, you know, a tail and a butt and there's, you know, no eye. And then you go to the front and all of a sudden there's two eyes and a bunch of teeth that you couldn't see before. So I think like when we're looking at things, um, we get a, actually get a better picture of the truth when we look at things from multiple angles um, and I think when you're talking about people arguing over your Venn diagram saying you know oh this is clearly all giftedness or that no this is clearly all ADHD they're just looking at it from you know the same tiger from different sides of the cage and to me that's like people arguing over sneezing like, you know, you've got allergy people going, well, sneezing is clearly a symptom of having allergies. And then you've got other people in the cold camp going, clearly sneezing is a symptom of having a, a cold or a virus. And it's like, well, it can be either or it can be both. Um, so I think, you know, that that multiple perspectives and, and looking at things and over even over time of saying, well, you know, now I've got a slightly different perspective. You talked about being a parent, that shifts your perspective on things. Like that's all okay because it all adds richness to the tapestry. I love the way that you just said that. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> it was. I've never heard anyone say a sneeze is beautiful before, but thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm thinking about your diagram, Katie, and like for me, when I think about the overlap between these types of neurodivergence and also other ones, you know, like overexcitability is at the heart of so many of that, of these things that we see as characteristics or symptoms, you know, but we just haven't put them together yet. Nobody has done this research yet. I, I mean, you know, because you're in my life that <laughs> I've done a couple of presentations this month on overexcitability and neurodivergence. I just feel shocked that nobody has explored connecting overexcitability with autism and ADHD and giftedness yet. Like how has that study not been done? But then I have to remind myself, oh, right. Well, it's because there's literature in this field saying that they're different things. And so I, I think that that's one of the barriers, but also I'm hoping that, you know, graduate students, researchers, other people will, will hear what we're, they'll hear this conversation and consider doing this research and, you know, connecting these dots and helping us have a real foundation, you know, empirically to support what we're saying, because that's, that's what we're missing right now. You know, we have this old writing from Dabrowski that gives us insights into what he was talking about. We can see that he wasn't only talking about giftedness. That's extremely clear, but we don't have, the research to back up what we're saying in the way that I wish we did. Right, right, exactly. And um, it seems like part of the reason also that that has happened is, you know, that it hasn't happened so far is because of all of the misunderstandings about what autism and ADHD are. Um, it's still so, so common um, for, I mean, clients that I have will go to talk to various people and, you know, like a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, 
um, to get assessed. You know, so this is someone that supposedly is a quote expert on autism or ADHD, and they will be told things um, that are completely incorrect and basically told, no, you can't be autistic because blank, you know, things like you can't be autistic because you make eye contact um, or you can't be autistic because you have been so successful in life or you can't be autistic because you um, are married, um, things like that, that I hear all the time. And then with ADHD also, um, it just came up in my practice this this week with um, a therapist that I'm supervising um, where a conversation she had with someone that was assessing a client was just horrifying of what they thought ADHD was in terms of saying, well, this person has a degree, so they couldn't have ADHD, or this person has this hobby that they focus on really well, so how could they have ADHD? So again, it's these misunderstandings about what, what ADHD is. I mean, the names themselves are so misleading. ADHD attention deficit, which we now know is not actually accurate. It's not a deficit of attention. It's just a difference in attention. Um, I can focus wonderfully on something that I'm interested in, but put something in front of me that I'm not interested in and I cannot retain the information at all, cannot focus on it. But again, things that I'm interested in, I can focus on for hours. And then autism, the name there, um, the, the etymology of the word autism is self-absorbed. Um, which, again, that feeds into those stereotypes and misconceptions about autism that um, that autistic people uh, don't have empathy and don't care about relationships, um, which is very inaccurate that um, there's a range of experiences of empathy for people that are autistic, but the majority of autistic people actually are like hyper empathic and that we have often, and again, this is not everyone who's autistic because there's a variety of experiences, but that many of us um, have very high affective empathy, also known as emotional empathy, which is where we can um, almost feel feelings of other people, but that we can tend to have lower cognitive empathy, which is understanding what that is. So that was something I experienced, um, I used to experience. I don't now because I've done a lot of work in, in improving that um, and kind of getting more skilled at that, but I used to get very confused where I would suddenly feel, say, anxious and then not know why. And then I would realize that it was because of the person I was interacting with, but it would take me a very long time to recognize that because of that lower cognitive empathy. Um, cognitive empathy though can be learned. So that's where now I'm a therapist. I've been a therapist for a long time. Um, I also, again, like I said, I did theater for a long time um, and there's research showing that theater itself can improve um, and, and shift your sense of empathy. So that's where, again, the, the way that someone presents with, say, something like empathy doesn't mean that they're not autistic. And so these names are even just part of the problem. But they are the names that we have. So it's not that we can necessarily change them at this point. But that is part of the reason I think that the research hasn't been done, because there is this these misunderstandings out there about what um, what autism, what ADHD actually are. And these were just a couple of examples. There's so many within the traits of both of these these neurotypes. Yes, that was so beautifully said. Oh my gosh. And you know, my camera was turned off and so you couldn't see, but I was really smiling at the point where you talked about how the names are part of the problem because this is a conversation I've had with Michael multiple times where he's like, how can you have ADHD, attention deficit you don't have an attention deficit. Like to him, 
my ability to focus on the theory, study it like I do, and kind of memorize things so easily means that I can't possibly have ADHD. When in fact, it's my ADHD, I think, that allows me to do some of the things I do and to like dig in the way I do and hyper-focus. But the, but the name, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, doesn't reflect me well, just like you said. I mean, it's the stereotypes and the tropes and the names themselves that cause so much of these misunderstandings. It's true. But I mean, I can say that I've come a long way in battling my own stereotypes about this stuff and especially autism. Like, I mean, I knew I was an ADHD -er since I was like 24. That's when I was first diagnosed. But I mean, now I really wonder about myself and autism because there's so much in autism where I see myself that, you know, I just, it seems to me like they're cousins, ADHD and autism. Like there, it's, there's so much overlap between these things, much more than people realize. Absolutely. There is so much overlap there. Um, and I just have to say, you know, well, a couple of things. One, giftedness is also a name. Going back to what you were saying before, the initial thought, you know, giftedness is also a word that has a lot of problems with it um, because it implies it's it's just it's confusing. You know, many, many people will say gift like what what is this gift and who gave you this gift and what you know, the name is a problem. But again, that's the word that we have. Um, and so that's what we have to work with, but it does cause problems. And I think, you know, I've said this before that just because the names are inaccurate doesn't mean that we should just throw out the concepts, but we do need to help people recognize that the names are not accurate for the actual experience. Um, the other thing I was going to say is I have also come so far in my understanding of all of this that I knew nothing about autism and ADHD, even though it turns out that I am autistic and an ADHD. I knew really nothing about it from graduate school and my first more than 10 years of being a therapist, I really knew nothing except what the DSM says because that's all the school I went to taught us is the stereotypes. So I didn't understand it either. And I think that's a big part of the problem too is that there isn't enough training happening um, to help um, clinicians, to help therapists understand these, these neurotypes. Um, and so I, and you know, earlier on, before I knew these things, before I understood these, before I did these kind of deep dives into understanding them and discover my own neurodivergence, I had clients that, that I was working with that said, hey, I think I might be autistic. And I was invalidating of their experience. And I have so much regret now over that. Um, and thankfully, um, at least one of the clients I've continued to work with. And so we've been able to process that. And I, you know, they now know that I am autistic and an ADHD or they know my process. And so we've been able to process it within the therapy, but I have a lot of regret over not knowing these things. And I also recognize that, I mean, I was not taught it. I was taught the stereotypes and that is a very big problem. Um, thankfully, the school that I went to at least now has, um, as far as I know, Dr. Nick Walker is on staff at the school that I went to, but was not when I went there. Um, and for anyone that doesn't know, Dr. Nick Walker is a um, professor and a neurodiversity advocate that has written some some books and has a blog and um, is very a very big part of the neurodiversity movement and so i'm very hopeful that there's a shift happening that that people like dr not like dr walker are on on staff and and our professors now at some of these schools so that people so that clinicians can actually learn accurate information that's great to hear yeah nick walker is great what you just said about giftedness, though, is problematic. It prompted me to want to bring up the fact that even if we say intelligence is problematic because of 
the history of intelligence testing. And yet the reality is that there is a meaningful psychological difference in people who have high intelligence. We can't just look at the history of intelligence and testing and throw it all away because there were mistakes made, you know, or that it was used improperly. There really is a difference at the high end of intelligence and how people experience reality. There are qualitative differences in people who are, who have high intelligence or are gifted. You know, it's true that these terms are problematic, but it's invalidating to the experience of I mean, those of us who have high intelligence to say like that it's all just trash and it doesn't matter and it's not a real individual difference. I mean, that's just as invalidating as telling somebody they're not autistic or an ADHD or, or and it's it's so frustrating for me personally to see that happen so much in the neurodiversity community. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I find that very frustrating. And I think what you said, um, you used the word qualitative qualitative difference. And I think that's what gets misunderstood so often is that people focus on the the number, the IQ number as being, well, it's flawed. So therefore we should just throw it out, not recognizing that um, it, it, it is actually a qualitative difference as opposed to the quantitative number of IQ, um, especially because IQ, you know, yeah, it's flawed because it doesn't pick up on a lot of people's intelligence, especially if they are neurodivergent in different ways. But again, that doesn't mean that that people aren't gifted, that this experience doesn't exist. Right. It's a very real experience and it is a qualitative difference in so many areas of life. Um, and it gets um, just as much as autism and ADHD are misunderstood. So giftedness is is still so misunderstood. All this for me seems to be pointing back to the issue of non-pathologizing uh, perspectives on stuff and, and non-pathologizing attitudes. So the, the importance of being neurodiversity affirming because the, the issue around we don't understand what a thing is and we're telling people they don't fit in there is because we're not accepting all the people that may identify, you know, just say it's ADHD. If, if we don't allow people to step forward and say this is me um, and then redefine those boundaries around what those people's experiences are um, then we're never going to get a, a proper view of what the picture actually is um, and in a place and a, a time where we've still got stigma we're just going to basically keep people in the brain closet Basically, people who don't want to step forward and say, my experience of being gifted um, is different to your experiences not being gifted or here's how I experience giftedness. All these problems are basically coming down to the fact that we don't have this welcoming, affirming space for which people can step out of the brain closet, declare themselves and say, this is what my experience is. And then look at that and say, okay, let's not invalidate you. Let's take that perspective and add it to our knowledge set rather than say, well, you don't fit in with our existing knowledge. So goodbye, get out of here. Right, right, exactly. And I think the key there, um, I mean, what I heard from what you were just saying, or at least what I was thinking about is how in the neurodiversity movement, one of the sayings that's frequently said is um, nothing about us without us. And so the idea that research and discussions and trainings about um, 
any particular neurotype should include people who actually are that neurotype, which might, I mean, that would seem so like, obviously, yeah, that should happen. But historically, that has not happened um, with autism and ADHD. And so there's a big movement now for um, researchers that are autistic and ADHDers to, to, to be the ones doing the research on all of this, because we need to focus more on lived experience as opposed to what the observed behaviors are. And I actually think that's true for giftedness too, because that's one of the things that I hear so much, again, from people who have this trauma around their gifted label. Um, there, there's, there's also trauma around the way that usually it was adults in people's lives. And I thankfully did not experience this, um, but I hear it so often where, where adults will say things like, you have so much potential, um, or because you are gifted, you are going to do these amazing things, or that you have a responsibility to do these amazing things, or the idea that we should support people who are gifted because of what they can contribute to society. When like it, it, that can feel very, um, at least from what I've heard from other people, it can feel very invalidating of their experience of, don't they have permission to just be sort of the normal person who happens to think in a different way? <laughs> and why do they have to contribute to society, right? So again, that's, that's it, within giftedness, there is um, a tendency to um, talk about giftedness from the perspective of somebody else, um, which is so interesting because this is oftentimes parents that say this and very often parents of gifted kids are also gifted themselves. Um, but this, you know, I think the reason that this happens so often, uh, and it happens again with, with, you know, autism, especially, and probably ADHD as well, where when someone has their own unaddressed trauma, that they will end up sort of playing that out with other people, possibly their own kids. And so, you know, we didn't, we didn't talk much about trauma so far, but that is something that is like the other lens that I see everything through. And like I said before, that I was a trauma therapist before I kind of discovered neurodivergence and I see everything through a trauma lens. But again, this is an autistic trait is like to notice patterns. And I, and I have to address this too, that I know that giftedness also, there's a tendency to notice patterns and I could be wrong about this. Again, this, there needs to be more research on this, but I feel like with autism, it's almost like we can't not see the patterns <laughs> in everything um, and see these how things fit into these systems. Um, and so with trauma, I see trauma almost everywhere. Um, and I have been privileged that I, I actually have not had that much trauma in my life, but I see trauma very clearly um, because of family background. I, I resonated with what um, Mark Smolowitz said on your podcast, talking about his own intergenerational trauma of his family, that, that my family, um, also there's intergenerational trauma from a different genocide, from the Armenian genocide. And so although I have been very privileged in terms of what trauma I, you know, the trauma that I've not experienced, I've witnessed it so much from a young age that I have become sort of hyper aware of symptoms of trauma. And so my point of saying all this is that I see how trauma is playing out in all of these communities and in the interactions with each other and in the the interactions between parents and kids and teachers and kids of all of these neurotypes and i think that is something that also needs to be talked about and addressed in order to start to shift some of these patterns because if we're not aware that that's what's happening if we're not aware that a, you know if a person isn't aware that they're triggered in the moment if they're not aware that their nervous system is being hijacked um, because they're perceiving threat 
if they're not aware of it, there's no way to change that pattern. That's the first step in, 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 in changing things. That was so wonderful. Oh my gosh. I have to just say that I said yes loudly out loud multiple times while you were just talking, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I want to ask a question of, of both of you on this because we've talked about trauma quite a lot on this podcast, um, you know, particularly around giftedness. And from a perspective of positive disintegration, do you think this just well, not maybe proves it, but do you think this highlights that connection between what Nebraska was saying with overexcitability and developmental potential? So the the fact that these individuals who are neurodiverse are seeing the world in, and experiencing the world in a different way, as a result of that, they are then, you know, manifesting, you know, they're either going through trauma or they're responding to it in a way that is really leading into a disintegrative process. Well, and not just see it differently, the world, but feel it and experience the world differently. And so, you know, I do think so, because, you know, if you have these overexcitabilities, then you're taking in so much more stimuli, you're processing it at a deeper, different level. You know, your, your experience of reality is different and it's different in a way that puts you in conflict with so much in your environment, you know, at school, at home, potentially, you know, based on the kind of support you have. And so I, I do think that, you know, from the trauma lens or the neurodiversity lens from either of them, you can see how a person with multiple kinds of overexcitability, especially all of them. And if you're gifted too, you know, your the intensity there means that, you know, it's, it's almost inevitable that you're going to experience positive disintegration. Yeah. And, you know, what that's making me think about is the, um, research that has been done, um, I believe it was actually the research on high, highly sensitive people or sensory processing sensitivity is the other word for it, which I know there's a lot of controversy around that concept too. Um, but there, some of the research around it um, showing that certain people have a tendency to be more affected by the events in their life in both directions so that they are more likely if a situation is uh, not supportive for them to end up with symptoms of trauma. And if a situation is, if, it, if the environment is positive and supportive, they're more likely to thrive, that it kind of goes in both directions, that they're more likely to be impacted by their environment. And I just wonder about how that plays out with developmental potential and overexcitabilities and all of this too, um, how that plays in. Because that's another thing that I think there's a connection, you know, the idea of highly sensitive people. I think there's a connection there too with all of these neurotypes that's not really understood. Um, but there seems like there's something there. I agree totally. And what you just prompted me to think about is, you know, when you think about that, like growth in either direction, and you put that in the context of emotional overexcitability in which, you know, there's this relationship connection. Well, in my case, I feel like I was really lucky in my life because, you know, when I was young and I was really struggling, I was easily able to connect with like supportive adults and, and people and age peers in my life and, you know, have a lot of growth promoting uh, like mutually empathic relationships that were like really critical to my mental health and my growth and my development. 
But I realize that there are also people out there in the world who have the potential to have that have strong emotional overexcitability, but don't have people in their lives who they can connect with, you know, that they don't have the, the right people around them to provide that kind of support and relationship. And, and if you're, if you're someone who has very strong emotional overexcitability, if that's your strongest type of overexcitability and you're, you know, if you're living in a situation where you're like, bereft of the right people around you to connect with that's going to be a kind of torture in its own way so i don't know i mean that's just where i went with this like i i think that if the conditions of your life are so critical and that we we just haven't given that enough credit you know too many people who study this particular theory dabrowski's theory put it all on the individual as if this is all some magic thing that we have within us that allows us to overcome well, it's absurd to think that our social environment doesn't play like a huge role in our development. I mean, it totally does. And Dabrowski absolutely, you know, makes that clear in his work from my perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as you were saying that, I was thinking about how um, one of the things that I think is so important about overexcitabilities with with anyone, you know, in the, the benefit that one of the benefits that I see in recognizing overexcitabilities um, is to use that as like a tool in recognizing what your needs are. Um, and I actually think of that, you know, even if you don't use overexcitabilities, but if just in terms of other, the other labels, autism, ADHD, giftedness, um, dyslexia too, even, you know, a lot of these neurotypes that they, if we can shift our perspective from them being a deficit to this is what a person, this is an indicator of what a person needs and what those needs are. Um, and with overexcitability is recognizing this is what, these are what somebody needs. So, uh, you know, I make a point of when I'm not, when, when I notice that I'm not doing very well for whatever reason, or if I'm feeling low, or if just something feels off to kind of go through my checklist of overexcitabilities and notice, okay, have I not been meeting one of those, the, the needs that I have in these areas? Like I, I have to have my needs met in some way in these different areas in the overexcitabilities. And, and I, I use that with clients often too, of recognizing, okay, if you have an intellectual overexcitability, you need to meet that need in some way. If you have, um, if you have imaginational, same thing, you know, with all of them. Emotional, um, because you just mentioned that one, I mentioned theater before, that for me was a big part of how I met a lot of my needs, um, but I think emotional was one of them um, through theater that I really met. Um, at, you know, that critical period of adolescence is when I was involved in theater. And I, I think that's why I got through so many years of my life um, without having more sort of like difficulties, despite the fact that I'm neurodivergent in all of these different ways. Um, I think the fact that I had, that my needs, my environment happened to meet all of these overexcitability needs that I had. That makes so much sense to me. Am I allowed to throw shit at Scott Barry Kaufman at this point? <laughs> Are we going to? Please do. I still feel so aggravated that, please go for it. He posted something on Twitter, which really got up my fucking nose. And it was one of those, everybody, you know, can be the master of your own happiness 
kind of tweets where it's like, well, if you just fix certain things in your life, you'll find your own happiness. I'm like, you are completely ignoring people's circumstances. You are completely ignoring what happens to minorities and what happens to poor people and what happens to people in trauma. And you are just wiping all that, you know, away and whitewashing it. And it really annoyed me. And Katie, what you were saying about needs and have it getting those needs met really struck a chord with me because the more complex you are as a person and the more needs that you have that need to be continually fulfilled the harder it is to do that in life and you know even if your circumstances are ideal then it's still not an easy task to do but for most people who are you know trying to balance family and work and you know paying the bills and the the everyday life thing it can almost seem like an impossible task and that whole thing that well you can just make yourself happy if you try hard enough thing really aggravates me um because it's just dismissing the circumstances and the situations for people who have it much harder you know when the ante is upped when you're setting the gameplay on the video game of your life to extremely hard um it, it's really just telling those people well you're just not trying hard enough Yes, absolutely. And and also when you were just saying that, um, I was thinking also that it is a very individualist way of, of perceiving things, right? Because yeah, if you if you have no responsibilities to other people, that makes that a lot easier, right? Um, being, you know, for example, a parent or if someone was caregiving for a family member or something, um, and especially um, with people who are um, you know, from collectivist cultures where it, it's not all about just changing things in your own life to make yourself happy. It's about serving the community and your family as a whole. Um, so yeah, I can understand why you would be <laughs> pissed yeah. off from how that. Dare you, how dare you have meaningful <laughs> relationships? <laughs> right. Concentrate right. on yourself and your own happiness. How dare you want connection with other people? It was too easy to get to an hour, Katie, where you clearly have to come back and join us again. <laughs> if it's okay with you <laughs> i would love to i would totally love to yeah how dare a lot you of have things... meaningful conversation katie <laughs> so katie thank you so much for joining us this has been an incredible episode it's going to be such a resource for people to draw on who want to know more about you know being neurodiversity affirming about the overlap between giftedness and the other types of neurodivergence like this is this has been a wonderful conversation and I would strongly encourage people to follow you on social media and to enjoy your content because it's excellent. Thank you so much. And it's, it's a huge honor for me to be on your podcast. And I didn't mention this before, but I mean, I, I now know you, Chris, but I was following your work before I actually knew you. Like I was, you know, on your website, reading everything that was on there and, you know, reading your, um, I think it was your is it your dissertation that you have posted there i read that a long time ago so i mean i've followed your work and then emma i definitely watched your videos um when i was exploring overexcited blogs and i still reference them sometimes and rec i recommend them to people all the time so i'm and i love your podcast so i'm honored to have been on today and i really enjoyed talking to both of you so thank you thank you great well thank you yeah that's so kind and thank you as well chris it's always a pleasure well thank you yeah it's always wonderful to be here and thanks to our listeners as well we always appreciate you being with us the positive disintegration podcast is funded by the dabrowski center if you like what you've heard please consider donating through the link in the show notes 
And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, give us a rating or leave a review. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram. And until next time, keep walking the path to your authentic self.